You're good. Great, thanks. Very glad to be here. Um, this is by no means an easy or light topic, but I can tell by the faithful commitment that all of you have made to the full length of the course that you are here because you have a, an interest in understanding emotional uh, well-being, emotionally healthy spirituality, and I was so impressed with the lineup of speakers and topics, and I imagine this has been a really rich experience for everyone. So glad to round it out here. Um, I started my career in domestic violence about 16 years ago with the YW Domestic Violence Center working in their shelter. Um, did the night shift, 3.30 to 11.30, and it was a 56-bed facility with lots of kids and moms, and so learned so much in those early days. Went on to create an aftercare program for them, so I would go and work in women's homes after they had launched from the shelter and were living safely there. And then, um, in addition to my work at the Refuge Center, which is very full-time, I serve at Bridges Domestic Violence Center on Monday nights. I see about four clients uh, a week there just providing the counseling services. So, long history with shelters and this um, Topic. So we're going to jump right in because this is a 90-minute presentation I'm going to try to do in 20. I actually pulled out a ton of stuff I would normally touch on, but we'll get to what we can and hopefully you'll find this to be um, impactful and relevant. And I'll say that with the statistics showing us that one in three to one in four women facing this issue at some point in their life, it's relevant in this room. It's relevant in this room and it's relevant in this church. Um, I will say that in my career, I have primarily worked with female victims, and so my presentation tends to lean towards the female perspective, but I want to emphasize right here on the front end that men can also be victims. This can go both ways, and I don't in any way want to minimize the fact that that's the case. So let's start with a quick survey. When you hear the term domestic violence, what are the stereotypical images that come to mind? Yep, yep, exactly, yep, so pretty uh, gender-specific, yeah, what else? Alcohol. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that it's happening when somebody's intoxicated or high, yeah. Mm -hmm. This may not be accurate, but I confess the initial image I have is of someone who's of much lower income. Right. Right. Oh, those exactly. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, so it's the it's the big guy on the front porch of the dilapidated house with the wife beater holding a Budweiser, and there's a pit bull chained up in the front yard, and like that whole stereotype. Yeah, that's absolutely what we think. Well, we're gonna debunk some of that heading in here today. So let me start out with our working definition. And I'm going to talk pretty quick, so grab onto the things that feel especially relevant to you, but there's just a lot to cover. So <clears throat> we are going to define domestic violence as any pattern of behaviors that attempt to control or intimidate a partner or family member through the use of fear, manipulation, isolation, intimidation, physical and or sexual abuse. Um, what we're talking about today is probably best defined as intimate terrorism because there's different types of power and control. You might see uh, mutual violence or violent resistance. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about coercive, top-down control over another person. Um, with intimate terrorism, there's the constant fear of physical pain, whether physical and sexual violence has ever occurred or not. Sometimes. Um, 
There are significant symptoms of PTSD for the person who's been in the relationship. So that's, that's what we're here to talk about today. Some of the myths, which you've already identified, are that it's not very common or serious. Again, the statistics fluctuate a little bit, but it's one in three to one in four individuals. Well, at some point in their life, whether it's with their family of origin, even a boss or supervisor or a partner might face these dynamics that it's only prevalent in low-income families, which is not the case, but I will say that as you move up that socioeconomic status ladder, sometimes it begins to take on a different flavor. There's a wonderful book called Not to People Like Us, Hidden Abuse in Upscale Marriages. And when there's a lot on the line, a lot of image, money, reputation, um, sometimes the flavor of the abuse looks a little different. We'll talk about that too. But ultimately, the goal is still power and control. Um, I've had victims come and tell me, you know, if my partner would just do a 16-week anger management class and they would learn to journal and take deep breaths and walk away, then this would be different. So the myth there is that um, anger causes domestic violence. There's also a myth that alcohol or drug abuse causes it. If they could just do 28 days at Cumberland Heights and they could... Um, go through the program, become sober, these issues wouldn't exist. So I'm going to hit you some highlighter moments today. This is a highlighter moment. This issue is not because someone has anger problems and it is not because they use substances. All those, both of those things might elevate and escalate a situation. This happens because of someone's values and belief systems. And I can get sober and I can learn how to take deep breaths and journal and I have better coping skills, but if my values and beliefs have not changed, then this won't either. And it's the values and beliefs about how a relationship looks, about how I value someone of the opposite gender, what the structure of the relationship is, and that it, it takes a significant amount of work to sort through those things in your own life. Um, Tennessee's top three right now for murders and domestic violence, which is really unfortunate and embarrassing for us. It's a unique crime because the victim lives with the offender, and usually a victim doesn't call the police or crisis line until after the fifth assault. So for like us at the Refuge Center, by the time someone picks up the phone and says, I need help, we know that they've been facing this for a long time and we're ready to help them as soon as we can. Okay, turn to your first diagram. In the 1960s, there was a group of women in Duluth, Minnesota, who began to sit down and chart out their experiences, just an informal gathering, and what they drew was something we now call the power and control wheel. This was later formalized in the 1980s by the Duluth Project. When someone is in an unsafe relationship, we recognize physical and sexual violence as abusive. We can get help from the law. We can get restraining orders and orders of protection and uh, shelter and all those kinds of things. Unfortunately, by the time it has become physical or sexual, there's a lot of other things that have been happening for a long time that we knew felt bad, but we didn't necessarily know they were abusive. No one had ever named it that before. So we're going to go through the spokes on this wheel starting with intimidation. So that's making someone afraid by looks, actions, gestures. Perhaps it's during an argument blocking the doorway so that someone can't get out or leave. It might be displaying weapons. So perhaps they've never come at you with something, but it's holding those weapons up in intimidating posture. It may be um, throwing something just past you so that it breaks very close to your head, but it didn't actually produce any physical damage. Um, it might be in a counseling session where we would see things beginning to escalate in the room a bit, some tension, and one person just gets very physically big and begins to dominate the room. Um, 
I'm going to give you a lot of examples today. Some of these are a little bit hard to hear, but these are the stories that I have from the work that I've done. Um, I, I worked with a woman for a long time who was uh, totally blind, and the state had issued her some seeing eye dogs over time to help her. And her partner uh, maimed the first two, killed the third. And after the third, the state decided, unless she was going to be out of the relationship, they would no longer provide her with any more assistance animals. And so he had never touched her. Never laid a hand on her, but you can see that he effectively took any independent um, living away from her. So emotional abuse, calling someone names, putting them feel, uh, down, making them feel bad about themselves, making them feel crazy, humiliating them. I think we all know what that looks like. Um, the isolation is controlling what someone does, who they can talk to, where they can go, what they can read. One, one thing I'll mention here is um, when you have to spend every waking breath keeping the peace in a relationship, then you slowly become isolated from yourself because it becomes all about what your partner needs and wants. And over time, what happens is you lose touch with what are the things I value, enjoy, what are my hobbies. Um, passions, perspectives. There's just no room for you in the relationship anymore. And so part of the therapeutic work is the therapist helping the client find themselves again if and when safety is established. And when you're early on in working with survivors, one of the things you'll hear is you'll say, well, what do you think about that? What, what's your idea there? And the client will say, I don't know. I do not know. That's why I'm here. That's why, that's why I'm paying you. That's why I need you to help me. And the truth is it's been so long since they had the freedom or margin to be able to think about their wants and feelings and needs that it's very difficult for them to access that. Um, the greatest compliment I have ever received from a client, ever, uh, who she was actually murdered three years ago, um, but what she said to me was, every time I come here, you just keep giving me back to myself. Just keep giving me back to myself. That really was our journey in the room. Minimizing, denying, and blaming is making light of the abuse, saying it doesn't happen, not taking it seriously, constantly shifting responsibility. It's saying it doesn't happen, it's your fault, you exaggerate. When you try to point out your concerns or grievances, the finger constantly gets pointed back around. There's never an opportunity for you to raise concerns. It always shifts back to you and what you've done wrong. Using the children, making kids feel guilty, putting them in the middle, using them to relay messages. Um, it might be just constantly undermining the authority of the other parent. So one parent says, Johnny, would you go put those dishes in the sink, please? And the other parent says, you sit right down in this house. Men don't do dishes, right? Just constantly undermining the authority. Um, I had a client who every time they were arguing, her husband would go and get in bed with the little girls. They were seven and nine. To our knowledge, there was nothing sexually inappropriate occurring. But what the girls learned is if I turn over and dad's in bed with me, that means mom and dad are fighting. So they began to have regressive behaviors. They were bedwetting and having nightmares, and that's ultimately what brought these two children to therapy. But he was putting them in the middle of it without ever saying a word, right? Uh, male privilege, we now call this entitlement, of course, because again, it, it does happen with both genders. Um, uh, but this is saying because of my gender or how much money I make or what 
you know, position I hold in the community or the church or whatever it is, I get to make all the big decisions. I'm the master of the castle, I'll define roles, and the other partner gets treated like a servant. So that really is entitlement. Image management plays a part here, and this is why this is one of the reasons we don't actually recommend couples counseling if we identify these dynamics until safety is established. Because a lot of times someone in this position is very concerned about what others think of them. And they it's the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing. So behind closed doors I look and act very different than I do at my job or at my church. And so then when we sit in front of a pastor or a therapist, if you come to the room and talk about what's really been going on, then you've made me look really bad in front of the other person. And so you'll find that maybe the partner shares a lot in that early visit, but then gets much quieter in later visits because there's repercussions for talking about what's really happening behind closed doors. And finally, coercion and threats. If you leave me, I'll come after you. If you leave me, I'll kill myself. Um, threatening to harm the children or do, uh, making you do illegal things. Um, I once had a woman, her, her husband was in ministry and he had a list of 12 things that made a godly wife. And at the end of the week, he evaluated her on that list of how godly she had been. And if she fell short, there was 12 items, if she fell short on any of those, then he withheld intimacy. And that was the consequence for her not acting in those godly ways. So sometimes the threats are a little more veiled. They're not as, um, you might have wondered. <laughs> it's hard to bring humor into this topic, so I appreciate that. We don't often laugh. <laughs> what were you going to say? Economic? Oh, yes, thank you. I did miss that one. Right, that would be preventing um, someone from getting or keeping a job. I'm calling you so often at your place of work that your boss says this is too disruptive. Having accounts that you don't know about. Um, I've had women where they are given $40 a week to buy groceries and household items and uniforms for the kids and everything, and then they've got to submit receipts to show exactly how they sent, uh, spent that. I told you I'd talk just real quickly about how this might look in someone who has uh, greater sort of acknowledgement or prestige in the community. Um, and I've gotten permission from my client to share these specific examples, and I keep telling her I'm going to bring her with me one of these days. Uh, she came to me quite a few years ago, and they had the, the dream, you know, the $1.4 million home, the house on Hick Old Hickory Lake, they had the kids in private school. Well, at early on in the relationship, when um, they decided to have children, her partner determined that it was her job to stay home and raise the children, and they didn't decide that together. He decided, this is your job. And so he created timesheets for her in 15-minute increments, and during the day, she was to fill out these timesheets of how she spent her time. And at the end of the day, he would score them, and he, if he felt like she'd been um, unproductive or inefficient in any way, then there was some kind of punishment. And sometimes that looked like, he and the kids would eat um, at the adult table, and she was forced to eat at the children's table while they watched her. Uh, one time they went to Dollywood as a family, and um, he felt that she was walking too fast. She was too many steps ahead of him, and that was very disrespectful. She personally was terrified of heights. It was lunch hour, the kids were crying, they were hungry, and her punishment for walking too fast was that before he would feed the children, she was to find the highest, scariest roller coaster and ride it while they all watched. Um, there were, he, she, she had to lay in bed and watch the shows he wanted to watch, but if she dozed off, that was also disrespectful 
respectful, so she'd have to come around to his side of the bed and stand at attention to show. Um, and then one more example is the DVR player in the house went out. She had to go to the basement and he kept her up all night. She, there was a test prepared for her in the morning where she had to study all the electronics manuals in the home. So is this somebody who's going to get a restraining order, an order of protection? She's not. She's going to get very little help from the courts. But is this someone who is a prisoner with a prison warden in a very fancy prison? Yeah, it is. So again, um, it doesn't always fit the Budweiser on the front porch with the pit bull deal. Sometimes it looks really, sometimes it's CEOs and executives and it just has this whole different flavor. But again, um, the goal is to establish power and control and dominance. Um, abusiveness can be thought of as a recipe that involves a consistent set of ingredients. Control, entitlement, disrespect, excuses, justification, and victim blaming. I never introduced this without this, okay? This is part A and B. This is the power and control wheel. It's the what is happening. This is the cycle of violence. It's the why and how. All relationships start off in some kind of seductive peacemaking phase. That, that just means that we're on good terms and I'm interested in you and I'm learning about you and there's curiosity. Um, with this dynamic though, very quickly, and I shouldn't say that, I mean, it might be after a few dates, it might be after even a couple of years, it might not even show up until after the wedding has occurred, but at some point in the relationship we enter this tension building phase, and people will tell you it feels like walking on eggshells, but it is essentially this period of increased criticism and complaints. Lundy Bancroft, who wrote Why Does He Do That, he would say it's the garden of resentments where my partner is tilling away at negative uh, points against me and safekeeping them to be stockpiled later as grievances uh, like weapons. So this is where, I've named it the list, this is where all of a sudden my partner seems really frustrated and irritable with me, but I don't really know why. I, I think it's maybe because dinner was a little late getting on the table or the kids were too loud or they thought my dress was too short or they didn't like how I looked at that uh, gas station attendant. These are all real examples from real clients. Um, but I sense the frustration is growing and no matter what I do or how, how I adjust, I can't quite seem to get us back to that place of peace. When the list gets long enough, my partner feels justified in some kind of explosion. That is where physical and sexual violence occurs, but sometimes it just looks like um, screaming at you for hours on end. It may be um, this idea that promises are broken, threats are carried out, there's a confrontation, a release, an assault of some kind. I had a client who was a, a pediatrician. She had her own clinic. She did very well in the city. The first time she showed up to session, she didn't have her intake paperwork printed. And I asked her about that and she said, my husband says I'm too stupid to use the printer at home so I wasn't allowed to print off the intake documents. He thinks I'll break the printer. Again, she's a board certified pediatrician with her own facility. Um, she told me, <clears throat> again, there was a lot on the line for them in terms of image. There was a, um, never any uh, physical violence as you might picture it, but what he would do is he'd wake her up at about two o'clock in the morning and they had some box fans that would line the room and he'd go turn those all on to block the noise so the children wouldn't hear. He'd wake her up and shake her and then he would just berate her for an hour or two hours, just a non-stop verbal assault of all the things she'd done wrong and what an idiot and moron and just name calling. And then he'd turn over and go to sleep having gotten that off his chest and she was left in such physical distress and emotional distress as well. Uh, the abuser's goal in an argument is to get you to stop thinking for yourself and to silence you. Um, 
this happens when they believe you deserve punishment. You've crossed the line too many times and there's so much someone, only so much someone can take. But if this was a linear process, it would actually probably not be in existence because we'd be out of there. Fortunately, it cycles right back to honeymoon seduction and peacemaking. In the 1960s, they called this the heart's flower candy phase. And sometimes it looks like that. Sometimes it looks like gifts and I'm so sorry and this will never happen again and promises and let's go see a counselor, let's talk to a pastor. But let me, this is another highlighter moment. This is not true repentance. This is spurts of kindness and generosity that help the person who did the wrong to feel better about themselves, and it is intended to hook you back in the cycle. It is not real change. And for the professionals working in this situation, it's very important for them to determine what real change looks like. I've got, we don't have time to get to it today, but I have a list of nine things that are indicative of real change, and it doesn't happen quickly. What that looks like is someone coming in and saying, um, I acknowledge everything I've done, I make no excuse for it, and I'm willing to go back and do the hard work to, to look at my family of origin and where I got these beliefs and values and untangle those and rebuild. The problem is that somebody in this cycle, for the perpetrator, so to speak, they're getting their needs met when it matters most, their needs take priority, and they get public status without sacrifices. So there's very little motivation to go and do that hard work. I'm getting everything I want in this cycle um, at the cost of my partner. Here's the crazy thing for the person who's in it. The rescuer and the torturer are the same person. The rescuer and the torturer, the I'm so sorry, it'll never happen again, come here, let me protect you, to the person who's harming me, it's the same person. That's so confusing when you're in it. And especially confusing when they present entirely differently in public as well. Um, each phase can last for any period of time. You might ask someone how quickly they move through this cycle and they might say in, in an hour. Someone else might say this only happens about once a year where we go through the cycle. But typically the more often we move through the cycle it increases in frequency and intensity. So as the more we go through it it's going to go quicker and the, the violence is going to escalate. Why does someone stay in this relationship, right? That's a really fair question. Well, one, because I love the person. I have given and sacrificed everything I know to give. Um, we have kids together, perhaps. There's um, been some good times, right? There's a lot of good that happens in that one phase. There's the hopes, the dreams, and the possibility. Maybe, maybe if I can just crack the code and figure out what's upsetting them or how I could be better, then this wouldn't happen anymore. There's the denial that it's not that bad minimizing the experiences. Well, I had a cousin who it was way worse for, and so it's not that bad for me. And then the fear. If I step out of this situation, what will, how will I provide for myself and my kids? Um, what will my pastor think? What will my friends think? Because nobody's ever seen this side of my partner before, so how, how will I receive support and help? Okay. And the self-doubt yes. is so huge and strong. I don't I don't think I could do this yeah. because you've been fed that message for something that kind of thing yep. as well. Yes. Cause, and the emotional abuse has played a role in me doubting everything about my own abilities and yeah, capabilities. That's right. If you have someone in your family or in your friend group who you feel like is experiencing any of this, um, I've provided a little worksheet called Ways to Help and Support a Victim, and I'm not going to go through it. I'm just going to give you a, key, a few key points. And this is number three highlighter moment right here. Um, 
when we have someone come to us who's in this situation, um, remember they've been in a relationship where someone is telling them what to think, what to feel, and what to do. So they come to us as a therapist, a friend, a pastor, mentor, and with the very best of intentions, we tell them what to think, what to feel, and what to do. And unfortunately, in this dynamic, that's called re-victimization, and we cannot do that. Here's what we can do. We can listen more and talk less. We can think with our friend, not for them. We can consistently ask them that empowering question, what do you want to do? We can believe them. We can not preach, but instead present options. It is the level of loyalty, respect, patience, and support that an abused person receives from their friends and family that largely determines their ability to recover and stay free. So this is all about empowerment, right? It's helping them reconnect with their own values and beliefs and ideas and then consistently giving them back to themselves. We can't feel like our success as a brother or father or mother or friend or therapist is dependent on whether they leave or go because then they'll leave and it, they'll do it for us and then they'll go back. And that is part of the cycle. It takes seven times of leaving and going back, usually before it's permanent because the pull of this cycle is so intense. A woman is also seven times more greatly, uh, more likely to be hurt or killed after, right after she leaves. That's the most dangerous time. And intuitively we know that which is part of what keeps us there. One thing you can do to help is um, help them think through an emotional and physical safety plan, and that's also in your packet. A recent study found that a person's own predictions regarding future violence by their partner were far more accurate than assessments based on any other factor. So what is that saying? Help your friends trust their gut. If they're gonna leave the relationship, part of that preparatory phase is um, documents that are hard to recover and replace. If you've left the home, sometimes it's hard to get back in the home. The police will usually take you back for one trip to help you gather items and it's like 20 minutes. And so in advance, if you can get copies of things that are hard to recreate, like passports, birth certificates, social security cards, medical records, and just begin to make copies and maybe store those in a duffel bag under a friend's bed or in a um, safety deposit box of some kind. Um, you might help them obtain a P.O. box where they can start to receive mail confidentially, whether it's from an attorney or others. Um, if they decide to stay, then we got a safety plan there. So how do you move arguments out of high-risk areas like kitchens where there's a lot of potential weapons and bathrooms where there's no way out? If they share a wall, perhaps in a townhouse or condo, maybe it's letting the neighbors know it with a certain number of knocks. That means call the police to do a welfare check. Um, it may be... Um, uh, obtaining a firearm permit, it may be carrying pepper spray, um, all kinds of things like that. Uh, also, if the relationship is over, changing locks, security systems, taking different routes home from work, having someone walk you to your car after work, avoiding banks and stores where I used to go with my partner. And then emotional safety. Um, if, if I'm gone long enough, at some point I'm going to start to miss my partner because I'm going to start to remember all the good times and that, all the things that happened in that honeymoon phase. And um, 
So I need to be able to talk to people who can help check me, create those checks and balances about the reality of the cycle, being able to journal, attend support groups. All three counties locally, so Davidson, Maury, and Williamson all have a free support group for survivors once a week that also provides free childcare. Each of them also have free hotlines that are 24 hours a day. So we've got incredible resources in this community. Um, one thing I missed that I do want to hit on is um, back to the cycle, that honeymoon phase, that is so powerful. Um, and my partner usually knows the language of seduction for me before I do. So what does that mean? Well, what's that thing that's going to keep me in the relationship? What's that one thing that's going to hook me and keep me? Um, I had another woman, her partner was huge, is this very large, uh, tall guy, basketball player, very intimidating. Um, they moved here to do a church plant. The, the sad thing was he had a secret meth addiction and was so out of control. And um, what would happen there is they'd get into these very um, heated and elevated arguments and she was just really beat down. But he'd go into the guest room and he, what he would say when he'd come out the next morning is he would say, I've been on my knees before the Lord all night and he's given me a vision for our marriage. And so then the next morning, she's thinking, who am I to doubt that? He's a, he's a minister. God has given him a vision. And there was no discussion about what had happened the night before. There was no acknowledgement of what had occurred. But it was simply, get back on the boat here because God's given me a vision. We're headed forward as a family. And she never felt like she could combat that. But he knew, even before she knew, that that was her language of seduction. At another woman whose car was constantly breaking down, trying to get the kids to school, trying to get to work, she's getting close to thinking, I, th I think I, this is not safe anymore. And then there's a gold, gold pickup, Ford pickup in the driveway. And that was her language of seduction, was that the safety that comes with the finances that can buy things that makes life predictable. So we've got to help our clients identify what their language of seduction is, or friends. I think I also included a book list, a top few. Um, that I've collected from friends in the field, top 12. Why Does He Do That by Lundy Bancroft is my all-time favorite. Getting Free by Jenny McCarthy is written like a manual. So one chapter is on how to um, file an order of protection, how to find the right therapist, how to find a, a psychiatrist if needed. And it, folks can read it out of order based on what's their need in that particular season. Verbally Abusive Relationship by Patricia Evans is also just phenomenal. So your friends may come to you and say, um, I know this feels bad, I don't want to live this way anymore, but it's all I've known. It's familiar and I don't have any idea what else I might look for in a partner in a relationship. So that's where the equality wheel is really helpful because there's, um, there's some discussion about do victims seek out abuse? Okay, it's a fair question because we do tend to see people in one abusive relationship after another. Um, and the truth is that the unhealthy dynamic resonates more than the healthy one does. There's a familiarity to it. At least I know what's coming. At least I can predict it. But I do not believe that there's a scarlet letter on the person. What I believe is that these individuals, these abusive individuals, um, prey on my very best qualities. So maybe for a woman that's loyalty and generosity and service, and I use those things against you. Yeah. If from your perspective, your experience, do they pray, do they sense these sort of people I think of as predators? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do they sense certain vulnerabilities 
I always, first, always think like a shark in the water that can smell blood in the water, even just a tiny little bit. The vulnerability yeah. may be a past, a prior history of abuse, be, because again, that it resonates that that sense of the chaos and the hierarchy and those kinds of things. But I really think that they sniff out the very best things in us and use them against us. Mm -hmm. And so then the client is so much less likely to want to be kind and generous and loyal because that got used against them. But we got to come back to know these are God-given traits and these were wonderful things about you and it was this other person who chose to take advantage of those things. They're not bad about you. Okay. So is there, percent, uh, is there some kind of a thing of this is what was modeled in the home before yep. and this is what was modeled in the home before yep. and it goes yeah, it's a learned behavior. That's right. Okay. Yeah, this is not um, this is not someone who's mentally ill. And women might say, you know, they just lost it this weekend. There's this explosion, this blow up. I'll say, what what got broken? Did did um, he break his fishing trophies, golf clubs? Well, no. Come to think of it, it was my grandmother's china set and my favorite this. And do do, do these explosions, these blow ups, do they happen at work with their boss? Does that no, no, it just happens at home on the weekends. And there, there's a strategy to it. It's a selective set of behaviors reserved for a particular person. And many times others don't see it. They don't see that it's happening. Mm -hmm. Those of us who have uh, children or, or grandchildren, particularly daughters, yeah. any, any preventative uh, work that we can do with them that makes it more likely if they find themselves in a situation like this that they will advocate for themselves. How do we help our girls? Yeah, yeah, I know, right? And some of that, I think, if it, the, my answer is not going to sound very profound because I think it's so self-evident, and I think that's modeling equality and trust and mutual respect with, between you and your partner, so they have that as an example. And it is allowing your children to have a voice. That doesn't mean not teaching them to be respectful and courteous and those kinds of things, but allowing them the, the freedom to say when something feels uncomfortable. If they come home from school and say something feels unsettled, saying, well, let's talk about that feeling in your belly. You know, what does that mean? And let's pay attention to that. Yeah. Um, I've never known of an abuser seek out help. And yeah. Really, like you'd see, like let's say there's a an addict and they find recovery and they've got 30 years of recovery and they're nor they're uh, living life as a, a yeah. responsible person. Right. The people that I've known in my life have never changed. How, how often? I, I, I don't. Three percent. Oh, okay. Three percent of the time does lasting meaningful change occur because in this dynamic I get everything I want. And why would I go back and do years worth of work around my own values and beliefs and untangle all of that to then enter a dynamic where I won't get all my needs met immediately when I say when I want it. So I just move on to the next person. 3%. I do give a story. Um, I did have someone who was referred to me who was in the ministry and when they called they said they were coming for trauma and so they came in and then he began to talk about how he treats his family and his wife and how what he thinks about them and I was like, buddy, I don't know if I'm the worst therapist in the world for you or the best, but um, I'm going to give you a book and I want you to <laughs> 
bring it back next week and we're talk about it. So I gave him, why does he do that? Um, and so that next week he came back and I thought, I don't know how this is going to go. I don't know if we're a fit for each other or not. And um, I it was when we were in an office condo that was a tall flight of stairs. So I came around the corner and I could see him. He had come through the door and he was standing at the bottom of the stairs and his arms were full of something. And I thought, oh no. So I said, come on up. Well, as he's coming up the stairs, I can see that it's all the pages to this book that he's ripped it apart. So he walks in my office and he dumps it on the floor and just kind of scatters across the floor. And he's got tears in his eyes and he said, um, he points at it and says, I'm this guy and I hate it and I don't want to be him anymore. And I said, then have a seat. I think we can work together. And I love that story because it's one of the few experiences I've had with somebody who was ready to dig in and do the hard work. And so it, it's possible, but it's extremely rare. Yeah. I want to relate you to that question. Yes, we train and protect our girls, but we've got to train our boys on yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. Because as anything that's gender-related, they're yeah. both genders. That's that, right. That have to that's actually right. be taught. That's right. They teach by seeing, yep. by learning, but we've got to also vocalize. Yep. Yeah, and I love in our home, you know, we've got a 10-year-old who gets sassy and a little bit disrespectful at times, and Dan will jump in right away and say, you do not speak to you. Go to your room. You do not talk to your mom that way. And, you know, those kinds of things, they stick. They send a message. Yeah. Last piece, and then I'm definitely open for more questions. I included a, a well, two, well, two things. Um, Dee and Barbie White are longtime, do you know them? Dee and Barbie White, longtime therapists. Uh, they've got to be maybe in their 80s at this point. Uh, they may have even retired. Longtime couples therapists in the community. And they created this document called Grace-Based Relationships. And I think integrating some um, biblical language into it, I love this comparative of what is law-based and what is grace-based. And it looks at sort of the flip side of the power and control wheel versus the equality wheel, but again, it integrates scripture. And it's um, who is right versus understanding and respect, feeling a prescribed role versus acceptance of differences and gifts, getting what I want versus making appeals and negotiating agreements. This is performance-based, this is needs-based. So just a great resource and tool for you all. I'm gonna read something and then I'll open it up for questions. This is Sheila Gutierrez. This has been photocopied so many times you can't hardly see her anymore. She's got bright red hair and beautiful curls. Sheila came to the YW Domestic Violence Center in the early 1990s and she was terrified of her partner but ready to make a change in her life. She came in, she worked her program really well and over time felt safe enough to launch, moved in with her brother, and um, was rebuilding her life, no contact with her partner at all. What was unbeknownst to her is that he'd kept a close eye on her and was continuing to stalk her and track her. And so early one summer in 1991, she and her brother went to a concert at the Starwood Amphitheater, which you probably remember, and um, he showed up there and shot and killed Sheila and himself. And so the intake worker at the YW wrote a poem in her honor, and it was published in the Tennessean that year. And I always read this as part of my presentation because this is why I do this work, is in honor of the people who lost their voice and didn't have a chance to come tell their story. And my hope is that you will um, take this material with you and bump into someone who may need these resources. So, woman of passion, spirit fired by God. I remember when you first came to the shelter. I opened the door, you looked at me, and immediately your soul greeted mine with an invitation to fly. 
There was so much pain in your heart, but so much light in your eyes. That night you told me of the horror you survived. Your silent stream of tears carried me to the agony within. You spoke with a hastening tone, each breath gasping for life, for freedom, maybe for fear that if you didn't speak fast enough, you wouldn't be allowed to finish your thought. I responded soothingly with the assurance that you were safe. You had all the time you needed to express your pain. You were so gracious, so thankful to be able to cry unabashedly, scream uninhibitedly, laugh uncontrollably, or just sit and think safely. Woman of passion, spirit, guided by God, I remember your strength. I watched you slowly and steadily reconstruct yourself, adamantly demanding back every stolen piece of you. Constantly igniting the flickering flame in your soul, I watched you birth fire. You, with your full crown of burning red locks, were fire, our fire. Your smiles were big enough to light the world, and your hugs were tight enough to be forever. Woman of passion, spirit, freed by God, now you fly with the eagles. Can't nobody clip your wings, lock you in a box, extinguish the fire in your soul or suffocate the wind song through your hair. In honor of Sheila. We have maybe a couple minutes for questions and answers, and then we'll have them be out of time. There's a lot to think about. You had mentioned with the phases of the cycle where it, it can be varying amounts of time. <clears throat> In your experience, is there a way to generalize the average amount of time it takes the relationship to get to the violence stage? No, there's not a generalization there. I've seen it after the third or fourth date, and I've seen it a decade into the marriage. Yeah. You speak about values being such yeah. a critical component. Is there anything happening in the broader cultural experience? It, it seems to me that a couple of generations ago there was a, a very um, what people used to think of was the biblical model that men mm -hmm. are the head and the women are subservient. We've moved away from that and, and emphasized the, the equalitarian mm -hmm. aspect. But is there a shift in the general cultural perspectives about marriage and relationship and so forth that you can see that it's, it's contributing to changes in these values at all? Do you see anything like that from your work? No, I haven't. That may be true, but I, ha I haven't. Yeah, I'd like to think it is, but I mean, maybe it's a really, really slow process. Yeah. And I, I interact with a lot of couples, and it seems to me that the ones I work with uh, relationally, they are more mindful of making the shift from what their parents uh, thought were the valued principles to mm -hmm. adopting a more uh, egalitarian kind of experience. Mm -hmm. But yes. that's a very narrow... Well, and we're talking about this more, and so I think people are finding a language, uh, and, and there's certainly so many resources in the community for people to access when they can identify what's been happening. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think there's less stigma around it, and yeah, yeah. Well, I have, uh, so back in the day, uh, one of the things is that marriages happened at a 
people got married at a fairly young age. And so mm -hmm. they, whether it was right out of high school or even it was in college or right after college or stuff, and now that it's being prolonged in many cases mm -hmm. like that, is there a difference that if you wait longer before you get married that there's less occurrence or is there, does that make any difference at mm -mm. all whatsoever? Mm -mm. Mm -mm. No. There is a profile of a batterer. I don't know if I included that or not, but there are traits uh, that you would be looking for and mindful of in the relationship no matter what age you were. I, I think though that um, it never looks like that the first few weeks, <laughs> um, months, and so it is uh, about that radar being able to come online and sensing something feels a little bit off here, I'm going to slow this down because quick involvement is one of those profile pieces that, that if I can get the ring on the finger, if I can get you in my apartment, then it justifies my controlling efforts because now you're not just my girlfriend, you're my fiance. So trying to push the relationship at a rate that's normal, faster than normal. Mm -hmm. So talking with daughters and grandchildren and things, more coupled with the modeling is talking to them and telling me yep. um, these are red flags yep. long before That's right. the dating list. That's right, yes. And what's on that equality wheel is a great baseline for conversation that if you're in a healthy relationship, set the bar here and expect nothing less. Right. doesn't mean a perfect relationship, but you, you deserve to have opinions that are different from your partner and those opinions still be treated with respect. That should be a baseline. So, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of someone close to me who he is more you than his partner, mm -hmm. and not physically at all. He's no danger physically. Yeah. He's a big, strong guy. But he is also very much a peacekeeper. Mm -hmm. And I just feel, I just don't see him leaving her because, well, the kids are grown now, and he kind of thought, well, maybe once the kids are out of the house. But he can't quite bring himself to do that. I think I think for him it would be so unpleasant to have to go through that. She probably made right. it really ugly. Right. But so he's just kind of declared a separate peace, you know, ignores as much as he can and just goes on. But yeah. we hate to see yeah. the toll it's taken on him through the years and on well, especially their son. The daughter's kind of gotten out of it, but But he gets smaller and smaller in the relationship, right? His voice um, is diminished. Well, he's, I think he's found his ways kind of passive aggressively. Okay. <laughs> it's not a healthy relationship. Yeah. If you're familiar with the Enneagram, he's a nine. Uh-huh. Yeah. Know, yeah. Just, <laughs> My husband's a nine. Way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, I mean, who did this? But there's a cost. Yes. There there's a cost to him for that. Yes. Yeah. So just helping him to assess that. I, I wish I we had him and say, more time. Hey, <laughs> Verbally abusive relationship might be a great resource for him. He holds his own, believe me. One of the things I've always respected about her is that she's not a pushover by any means. That's true. I mean, I just want to. Okay, so. And my in-laws are sitting right here. Oh, so glad y'all are here. Amy, thank you for coming. <laughs> You're welcome. It, here's the thing. We're at the end.